Hi, and sitting in for Seth Leipson, Mayor Jolovitz, talking mostly about the Middle East. Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's Islamic, but it's certainly not a republic. They are behind everything. We know that's the case. And the United States engages in appeasement, something which needs to be discussed. If journalistic integrity means anything, journalists need to look under the hood of the biggest news story of the year, the biggest news story in the Middle East of this generation, the Hamas attack of Israel and the atrocities of October 7th. Coupled with that, of course, is the stranglehold that the Islamic Republic of Iran is putting in the entire region, Hamas, Hezbollah, and in Syria. In the past two months, the Iranian proxies have attacked U.S. military bases, outposts, or military personnel 87 times. That's the number that the United States admits. Geostrategic experts, including those in Israel, say that the American installations, personnel, have been attacked over 155 times. The United States has responded four times, bombing empty warehouses late at night. The U.S. claims that it killed less than a handful of the belligerents, including, yeah, they announced, a late-night watchman in one of the empty buildings that the United States targeted. The Iranians of course, must be trembling because their proxies have accelerated their attacks. The United States respond by sending $6 billion, billion dollars to the Iranians and then $10 billion. That's in addition to the $60 billion in sanction relief, sanctions relief that the United States has given. Could it be worse? Yes. Worse is the ongoing development of an Iranian nuclear military arsenal, a military capability. We're talking about the bomb. While the United States discovered that the the U.S. envoy to the Iran nuke deal, you've heard the name, Robert Malley, the United States found out that he was actually an Iranian asset, an Iranian asset, and he was dismissed from his position His security clearance was taken away, and he's teaching. I think it's in Yale right now. That's it. Some members of Congress asked to have a review. They wanted an investigation. If, in fact, the person was actually leading the the discussion of the Iran nuke deal, shouldn't we know if, in fact, he was working for the Iranians? And the Biden administration said no. They would not allow Congress to investigate. So now preoccupied with its pressure against Israel, the Biden administration, pressuring Israel to show restraint in Gaza. And by the way, I do want to tell you this. Some of you might have seen John Kirby with his interview, uh, his uh, press conference earlier today. And he talks about the fact that Israel has a legitimate right to defend itself and what the Hamas people did was barbaric and everything else. The story from Israel is quite different. That's the public pronunciation made by the spokespeople for the Pentagon and for the State Department, behind the scenes in Israel, they're putting unbearable pressure on Bibi Netanyahu. You heard that Biden sort of misspoke, and by misspeak, I mean he said what he was thinking and what he was told to think. 
And they realized it was embarrassing when he said that there needed to be a change, a change of governments in Israel, anti-Bibi. They don't like the coalition makeup. The United States wants to change what the Israeli government looks like and what it does in prosecuting its war in Gaza. But let me talk about this threat that no one seems to be putting in the forefront of discussion. And I'm talking about the development of a bomb that will forever change the face of the Middle East. Now, Team Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Secretary of, De- uh, of Defense Lloyd Austin, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, all spineless, clueless. No one is paying attention. Earlier this year, CIA Director William Burns appeared on CBS's Face the Nation, and he was asked a question about Iran. Now, we have a one-minute soundbite. I think it's actually 59 seconds long. What he says is startling. Listen carefully. Have Iran's leaders made the decision to pursue a nuclear weapon? Uh, To the best of our knowledge, we don't believe that the supreme leader in Iran has yet made a decision to resume the weaponization of program that we judged that they suspended or stopped at the end of 2003. But the other two legs of the stool, uh, meaning enrichment programs, they've obviously advanced very far. You 84% know, over the course of the last purity, years. reportedly. They've advanced very far to the point where it would only be a matter of weeks before they could enrich to 90% if they chose to, to cross that line. And also in terms of their missile systems, their ability to deliver a nuclear weapon once they developed it has also been advancing as well. So the answer to your question is no, we don't see evidence that they made a decision to resume that weaponization program. But the other dimensions of this challenge, uh, I think, are growing at a worrisome pace, too. Stupidity in 60 seconds. The head, the CIA doesn't believe that Iran is advancing its nuclear military operation. Doesn't think he sees no evidence of it. While he says the missile, yes, they're inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles, yes, there's some progress there. And the reason there's progress is because when Obama did the deal with Iran in 2015, The Iranians refused to talk about missiles, said we're not talking about missiles, and the United States, of course, acquiesced. It's remarkable. The American government, we're talking about the American government, actually is telling Israel how to prosecute a war when anyone who is a student of history understands that the United States hasn't won a war in 80 years. In 80 years, the United States has not won a war. But they're telling Israel how to prosecute its war. It's insanity. It's truly insane. And as far as Iran's concerned, yeah, let's throw them billions of dollars. Let me talk about wars for a few minutes and put it in perspective. People don't understand this. Certainly these idiots who run American foreign policy don't. I want to talk about war deaths. Two comprehensive studies which were done about war deaths, war-related deaths, 20th century. I'm going to cite some stats which will blow your mind. From 1950 to the year 2000. Now let's examine some of these numbers to put this reality into perspective. It's about casualties of modern war. And of course I'm going to bring in Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict and the war against Israel. 
the inventory of total deaths and conflicts worldwide since 1950 numbers 85 million people. Mind you, this doesn't include the World War II numbers. Of these 85 million people who died in modern war, 11 million Muslims were killed in those 50 years. 11 million Muslims between 1950 and the year 2000. 35,000, which is 0.3%, died fighting against Israel. Israel killed 35,000, which is one out of every 315 Muslim fatalities in those 50 years. So one out of 315 Muslims who died, died at the hands of Israelis, but the whole world blames Israel for whatever suffer, whatever suffering the Arabs have. In contrast, by the way, sort of a relevant number, of the 11 million people, Muslims, who perished, 94% of them were killed by, you got it, fellow Muslims. And yet, and yet, one would think that the Israeli belligerence towards the Arabs is cause for concern. I mean, after all, just look at all the U.N. resolutions which passed against Israel every year. More resolutions passed against Israel than all the other nations combined. I tell you, we live in the twilight zone. We live in the twilight zone. 35,000 Arabs died in wars which they manufactured against Israel. Wars that Israel defended itself. And the world talks about Israel. New York Times thinks it's the only place in the world that there's a war and that the aggressor is Israel and the victim of the poor Palestinians and the poor Arabs. While Muslims continue to murder Muslims. Commercial break. We'll be back. Hi, welcome back. Mayor Jolivet sitting in for the great Seth Leibson. Um, it's the seventh night of Hanukkah tonight. So the listeners out there who celebrate Hanukkah, uh, Chag Sameach, the best to you. Which brings me to a story that I just have to somehow throw in. So I'll throw it in here. You might have seen it was a public relations disaster for the uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, and her Jewish husband, You notice how he said that? The Jewish husband, Douglas Emhoff. Let me tell you the story very briefly. You might have seen this, but it's worth telling again. The headline, did U.S. Vice President's husband invent the Hanukkah story? Kamala Harris's husband posted a picture of he and she lighting Hanukkah candles with the story of the Maccabees and their heroism. And he was criticized from all circles for telling a story which wasn't the real Hanukkah story on his uh, social media post. Let me give this to you very quickly. Douglas Emhoff, husband of U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, posted a photo of him lighting the Hanukkah candles together with his wife with a post about about Hanukkah and the heroism of the Maccabees. In it, he talked about the fact that the reason Hanukkah lasts eight days is because the Jews were hiding (laughs) <laughs> the Jews were hiding for eight days and they didn't have light in their dark corners where they were hiding and therefore they needed the oil and the oil which was supposed to last one day lasted eight days while they were hiding. So let me continue. Following the criticism, Emhoff, who's Jewish, deleted the post. 
The story of Hanukkah and the story of the Jewish people has always been one of hope and resilience. In the Hanukkah story, the Jewish people were forced into hiding, you wrote. No one thought that they would survive with a few drops of oil, and they did. They survived for eight days in hiding. During these eight days in hiding, they recited their prayers and continued their traditions. That's why Hanukkah means dedication. It was during these dark days that the Maccabees dedicated themselves to maintaining hope and faith in the oil, each other, and also in the Judaism. The dark days of Hanukkah. I think that's the story. That's what he wrote. One comment, and there were so many. Jason Bedrick from the Heritage Foundation criticized this reinvention of history, and he said, I really hope the second gentleman left this to some hapless and uneducated intern who couldn't be bothered to even fact-check in Wikipedia. Eight days of hiding? Yikes, man! (laughs) That's who we have running our government. Okay, the brainiacs. Speaking of the brainiacs who run it, I was talking earlier about the attacks against American personnel and against American installations by Iranian proxies, that there were 87 that America agreed had happened, um, and they seem not to agree with the other number, which is 155 plus. The explanation that they gave was, well, if missiles was launched against an Israeli, out, uh, excuse me, against an American outpost and it missed, well, we weren't sure if we should actually count that as a, target, a targeted attack on America or American personnel. Here's the better one. Sabrina Singh, Deputy Press Secretary with the Department of Defense. Now, this is a girl who's quite accomplished. She's the current Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary of the Department of Defense. Um, previously served as special assistant for the president and deputy press secretary for Kamala Harris in the Biden administration. And he goes on to talk about she worked with Cory Booker. I mean, her resume is quite impressive on paper. Um, she served the department communications director for the Democratic National Committee. She's married to Mike Smith, the political director for Nancy Pelosi. Okay, on and on. Let me tell you her comment. When asked by some aggressive reporters why the United States wasn't doing more to respond to these attacks against American personnel in the Middle East, at a press conference, she actually said, quote, there were days when the Iranian proxies do not shoot at the United States forces. That was her response. There are days when they don't shoot. Imagine, this is the same United States that's telling Israel how to prosecute a war. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Let me go to the two-state solution, this whole notion of having a Palestinian state beside Israel. Bernard Lewis, one of the great, great scholars of our time, passed away just a couple of years ago. I think he was 101 or 102 years old. In his book, Faith and Power, he wrote the following. It is so, so important that you hear this. If the conflict is about the size of Israel, then long negotiations can eventually resolve the problem. But if the conflict is about the existence of Israel, then serious negotiation is impossible. End quote. Common sense. Let me give this to you in another definition. Okay? It's the geostrategic comment about the same thing that he mentioned. Listen carefully. Retention of defensible borders by Israel 
implies that a Palestinian state is untenable, or the establishment of a tenable Palestinian state implies indefensible borders for Israel. Stated otherwise, I'm going to give you the explanation as provided by Israel's National Security Council. They said the same thing, but just in different words. Here's what they said. The maximum that any Israeli government will be ready to offer the Palestinian Arabs and still survive is much less than the minimum that any Palestinian leader would accept. And we know that to be true because they have rejected time and time again. Every time there's been an offer, they've rejected. And Israeli diplomats and proponents and advocates of Israel scratch their head. I cannot tell you how many of my colleagues have said, I don't understand why the Arabs don't accept. Israel, after all, is offering them 95 or 96 or 97 percent of the occupied territories. It's because they don't understand the conflict and they don't understand the Arab mind and that the Arabs have a different calculator. The Arabs, excuse me, the Israelis cannot understand why the Palestinians have three or four times rejected offers by Israel of over 95% of the so-called occupied territories. Well, the reason is quite simple. The Israelis refuse to understand that the Palestinians view the offer of the West Bank being returned, turned over to the Arabs, is only 19% of what they actually view as the occupied territories. The Arabs, you must understand, view all of Israel to be occupied, and not just the so-called territories. And it's for that reason that the Arabs keep rejecting, and we don't understand that their definition of what's occupied is different than our definition of what's occupied. And yet all the demonstrators in the street, 53% who admit that they didn't know what they were chanting when they were yelling from the river to the sea, from the river, Jordan, to the sea, the Mediterranean, it means that all of Israel is considered by them to be occupied and must be liberated, which is a euphemism for destroyed. That's the reality of the Middle East that people just don't want to accept. Once again, commercial break. When we come back, boy, we're getting close to the end, and I've got a lot more to give. Hi, Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leibson. Let's talk about the Middle East. Let's talk about the two-state solution. Let's talk about Palestine. Let's talk Palestine. You realize the Palestinians are a manufactured people. They didn't exist before the 1960s. Yes, they didn't exist. My parents are both Holocaust survivors, my father having survived 13 concentration camps when liberated, came into what was then British-mandated Palestine. Both of them were captured coming in illegally, spent the first month and a half in prison, atlit. When finally they were released, among many, many others, they were issued a passport. This is before Israel was created as a state. It's a year and a half before, almost two years before. My father carried a passport. The passport said Palestinian. Palestinian. So what did the Arab passport look like? The British issued those as well. It said Arab. 
1946, 1947, until Israel became a state, those people carrying a passport in British-mandated Palestine, the Palestinians, they were the Jews. The Jerusalem Post today was the Palestine Post. When you look at the flag, Google a flag of Palestine at the time. Star of David. Not the same one that you recognize, a different one. So this notion of a Palestinian. The Palestinians were created in 1964 in Cairo and in Moscow. They were created in order to offset the Zionist enterprise. If, after all, the Finns have Finland and the French have France, the Austrians have Austria, how do we get... Oh, that's a great idea. Let's establish a Palestinian entity so they can lay claim to Palestine that doesn't exist. Never mind that in 1922, I'm not going to go deep into history, most of what was British-mandated Palestine that was taken from the Ottomans after their reign from 1517 to 1917, 400 years, 77.5% of what was taken by the British was turned over to Transjordan, which later became in 1946 Jordan. So the Arabs actually got most of mandated Palestine when I say most, a huge chunk of it. And of the percentage that was left, to 22%, that was to be divided between a Jewish state and an Arab state. Not a Palestinian state, a Jewish and an Arab state. The Arabs, of course, rejected it. UN Resolution 181, November 29, 1947. The Arabs rejected it because in accepting a two-state solution, which is what it was, a partition plan, it meant accepting, you got it, a Jewish state. And they refused, and they still refuse. Palestinians do not recognize, Palestinian Arabs don't recognize Israel's right to exist. So let's put that in its proper perspective, okay? There are no Palestinians. We, however, have played the game. We've allowed them, using language, the manipulation of language, as I said earlier, to transform the conflict from what I call it the Arab war against Israel or the Muslim war against the Jews into the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And all of a sudden, Israel becomes the Goliath and the Arabs, Palestinians, become the David. And Israel has to go to the, every international body, academic body, United Nations, and every year try to articulate the fact that Israel has a right to exist. Israel is the only country in the world that actually looks for an opportunity to stand before any forum and defend its right to exist, which is insane. This famous rabbi once said, ask the ambassador from Finland or from Poland to go to the United Nations, stand up before the body of 193 nations and make a case for the fact that Finland has a right to exist. Tell the ambassador from Poland, yes, next week you get a chance to speak to the congregation of nations and convince them that Poland has a right to speak, uh, to exist. And you know what they would do? The rabbi said, and he's right. It spit in your face. It would spit in your face. The fact that we have to stand before body, world body, and ask for a right to exist. It's madness. We have another break coming up. When we come back, I'm going to give you a thorough explanation of a two-state solution looks like, what it means, and why anyone who thinks that they support Israel or is a proponent of a strong and secure Israel who thinks that the two-state solution is the answer, is doing something quite, quite bad. 
It's anti-Israel and it's anti-Semitic when we come back. Okay, getting close to the end. It's Mayor Jolovitz sitting in for Seth Leibson. Let me just mention this. I wasted two hours this morning going through the history books, and I have a lot of them. I was trying to find that chapter where Winston Churchill, as part of the Allies' humanitarian pause, sent supplies to Hitler during World War II. I just couldn't find it. Let me tell you something about Palestine, Palestinians. There's no such thing as Palestinians. There's no such thing as Palestine. What is the notion of a two-state solution? Where is the Pal- where's Palestine? Where is it supposed to be? Where is that second state going to be? Well, even though things have changed in the last two months, the Western world's vision and the Biden administration's vision and any liberal organization, including liberal Jewish American organizations that support a two-state solution, believe that Palestine will be a confederation of Gaza, the area, which is, of course, ruled by Hamas, and the West Bank, which should be properly called Judea and Samaria, and that those two would be consolidated, even though there's a gap between them, geographic, and that would become Palestine. So Israel would give up and relinquish all territories taken in the 1967 Six-Day War, defensive, and Palestine would be establishing Gaza at the time with Hamas and the West Bank with the Palestinian Authority. Now, the military arm of the Palestinian Authority is Fatah. It's the military arm. Hamas and Fatah, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, are always at odds. They kill each other. It was mostly Hamas killing Palestinian Authority. They each have a charter, a, chap- a charter, a covenant, which calls for the destruction of the State of Israel. The Hamas came in, in 1988, as I mentioned earlier. The PLO covenant came in 1964. Each called implicitly or explicitly for the death of the Jewish state. But Palestine is where it's going to be placed by the Biden administration or whomever believes in it on Israel's borders. The insanity. Let me just tell you something about this whole Palestinian solution. First of all, let me tell you something about the people who live there. Survey taken. This is the survey taken after October 7th. Survey was done both in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and in Gaza. Two surveys done by two different Palestinian research centers, which demonstrate overwhelming support for Hamas. This was interviewing Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. And again, this was done several weeks after the October 7th atrocities. The first was conducted by Birzit University and the other by the Arab World for Research and Development in Ramallah. In the former, 87% of the Palestinian civilians, these are the innocent civilians that all the Americans are crying about, 87% of them support, supported, excuse me, what Hamas did in October, 19, uh, October 7th. Of the latter... supported the atrocities, but here's the more telling number. 98%, you realize 98 is almost 100. 98% of the Palestinian civilians surveyed in the West Bank and Gaza said that the massacre perpetrated by Hamas made them, quote, proud Palestinians. These are your civilians. And a weekly... On that Middle East radio forum, the weekly radio broadcast that I co-host with William Wolf, 
we're conducting a $1 million giveaway contest. $1 million. The first listener, I think William Wolf is listening in right now. He's saying, what? <laughs> the first listener who can name one Palestinian civilian who does not support Hamas wins a million dollars. And just by way of disclosure, the winner gets $10 a year for 100,000 years. We've had no takers so far. But let me get back to the two-state solution. The two-state solution, the delusion. It presupposes that Fatah and Hamas would get together and establish a state of Palestine. Israel would return to the 1967 67 borders, which, by the way, should be rightly called the 1949 Armistice Lines. Jerusalem would be divided. The Temple Mount will be under Arab control. 835,000 Jews will be removed from their homes in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. 335,000 of them in Jerusalem and 500,000 of them outside of Jerusalem. Also, the Arabs, we assume, we're told, will accept Israel's existence in these truncated borders. And that Israel will accept these truncated borders that Abba Ibn famously referred to as the Auschwitz borders. It also presupposes a two-state solution that Israel dismantled Jewish, all Jewish communities beyond the Green Line, that Israel released all the Palestinian terror prisoners in Israel, thousands of them, that the Palestinians maintain a right to establish its own military without any Western restrictions. Palestinians have a right to establish any alliance with the Muslim world, of course, we're talking about Iran. Israel relinquishes all the water rights to Palestinian Arabs. And here's the big one that nobody talks about. Nobody. Not even Israel talks about it. While Arabs, citizens of Israel today with full rights, continue to live in Israel with full rights, Palestine, as they envision it, will be Judenrein, free of Jews, ethnic cleansing, There'll be no Jews allowed to live in Palestine. This is the two-state solution that people talk about. It's, in a, it's imperative that we understand, dear listeners, that the Palestinian Arabs are more driven by the need to eradicate Israel than they are about establishing a state of their own. It's the bottom line that you must understand. Now, we know what the Arab mentality is in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and Gaza, because the polls just showed us. And that's post-October 7th. They want Jews dead. And yet the United States government, knowing as much as I do, this is no secret, these polls were made quite public. Despite that fact, Fatah, which is the military arm of the Palestinian Authority, mind you, the United States wants Fatah, the Palestinian Authority, to now rule once Hamas is displaced They want, and this is the American vision, that the United States sees a Palestine which will be ruled both in Gaza and in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, by the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority, which, and I have in front of me, 22 incidents since October 7th, 22 headlines, newspaper headlines, Fatah, Fatah, mind you, that's the Palestinian Authority, calls for terror in the West Bank. Fatah's terror wing brags it helped Hamas in the massacre. Palestinians and Fatah celebrate Hamas's barbaric 
massacre. And on the Palestinian Authority will pay millions of dollars to the families of the Hamas people who penetrated Israel into the and on and on. Here's one. Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah, mind you, that's a Palestinian authority, brags about his Palestinian Authority officers being funded by the West but fighting Israel. That's the reality. The biggest one of all. Fatah boasts 7,200 terrorist attacks against Israel by the PA in the year 2022. This is who they want to govern the Palestinian state. Commercial break. Welcome back. Last segment, just a few minutes. Thank you so much for joining us and staying with us, those of you who did. Happy Hanukkah to the Jewish listeners. Just very quickly, two-state solution, because that's all that's going to be talked about soon. The Anti-Defamation League did a survey called the Global 100 Index, where they listed actually 101 countries. The reason it's 101 is because the West Bank and Gaza was the that extra one, the 101. The most anti-Semitic countries in the world global survey, and they actually gave a point ranking. I won't go into it because it's quite a long survey. It's a remarkable study, but it's quite disturbing. The most anti-Semitic country, but it's not a country, entity, is West Bank in Gaza. 93% of its respondents professed anti-Semitic views. And yet the Anti-Defamation League, those idiots, support a two-state solution. It's the myth of Jewish intelligence. Winners and losers. We look back, October 7th, the war's not over yet, but I can tell you winners and losers right now. Losers, Israel, big time. Israel showed that its intelligence failed, and they'll be uh, hell to pay, by the way. Israel showed that uh, its belief that the Palestinians, the Arabs coming in from Gaza, Working in Israel, the number just gone up from 18,500 a month, a day, excuse me, a day to 20,000. And what they were doing was spying and planning and plotting to kill Jews. And of course, the 1,300 people who died so barbarically, terrible, never mind the soldiers. Hamas also losers. They're going to be running for the rest of their lives, those leaders living in Qatar. Hamas losers. But the winners, quite obvious, Iran Iran is a big-time winner because the United States does nothing. Joe Biden, who couldn't find Gaza on a map of Gaza, is telling Israel how to prosecute a war, along with his uh, stooges. Iran, the big winner. And the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, he, the architect of the pay for slay, killing, uh, paying terrorists to kill Jews, because the United States wants to give him a Palestinian state. And in Israel, internally, Israel's left. Israel's left also. Okay, let me just end with this. In Israel, there's a, uh, well, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. One finds these words of admonition attributed to Yehuda Bauer, who is Israel's best-known Holocaust scholar. Thou shalt not be a victim, thou shalt not be a perpetrator, but above all, thou shalt not be a bystander. My message today, as it is everywhere I speak, that the fate of civilization is at stake, and certainly Israel's as well. Do not be bystanders. 
Thank you so much for joining us today. And I know we're all looking back. We're all looking forward to having Seth Leibson back in his seat. Thank you so much.